Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. And this is episode 19 of season 2, Conversation with Lucas Roman. Lucas is a relatively new but still somewhat prolific contributor to the Climbing Zine. He wrote a really popular and fan favorite essay about Brad Gobright, um, his first ever climbing partner, and um, something that a lot of you have probably read and really enjoyed and took to heart, and I know I did. And he also wrote an essay in volume 20 of the zine, and something that really hit home with me of the forgotten era before this era we're living in now, um, like kind of this pre-smartphone era of dirtbagging where it was a little more raw, a little more rootsy, but there's plenty of arguments to be made that uh, things are better now. But Lucas is really a writer's writer, and I think in this conversation we get to the heart of some really great things, and we talk about Brad, we talk about Lucas's sobriety, we talk about writing, and uh, just the path of life. So really hope you all enjoy this conversation. The best way to support the climbing zine and to support this podcast is by picking up something in our online store. And you can find a discount link in the show notes for 15% off anything. We've got merch, books, zines. Um, we've even got a children's book. And we've even got some new The Dirt Bag is Dead merch with art by Mike Hanslick. So check that out in the show notes um, over at our website. All right, let's get into this conversation with Lucas Roman. Hey, everyone. Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Hey, this is Chad Rich. I'm the editor and producer of this podcast. We can't bring you this audio art without your support and support from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com. Now let's get into the episode. All right. Um, this is the first ever interview that I've ever done from Castle Valley. We're sitting here in the Castle Valley campground with Lucas Roman. Hello, hello. Which is, uh, he's a, will be a prolific contributor to the climbing <laughs> zine. You, you've, you're on that track, you know, I've, I, I just talked to Chris Schulte recently, and he's he's one of those class of writers that's written maybe four or five essays that have uh, 
um, some some deepness to it and i, I feel like that that's a cl- there's a it's a small class of these people that have written several good articles mm-hmm. for me and this is like a long way basically of saying that you're a I guess a real writer. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, I feel uh, very welcome and part of your your mission and what you're doing, though. So it's been a pleasure, for sure. I appreciate that, and I guess I want to start this conversation by how we connected, and it was through um, your story that you wrote about your friend Brad Gobright. Mm-hmm. And um, I found it, um, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but when I was on Facebook, I, I saw this article circulating and I read it and I was like, man, this is this is um, a writer I feel a kinship with and also a writer that um, had something to say and, and said it in a, a very poetic, meaningful way. So yeah, I'd just like to start by, you know, yeah, talking about your friend Brad Gobright in that essay and it took me a while, a little while to figure out that you had been working on that essay um, before Brad's untimely passing. Yeah, uh, good place to start is any. And uh, yeah, I've been fortunate that, you know, of, of some of the stuff that I've put out on the internet. Yeah, I think some of it has, has gotten more attention than others, and that article was one of them. And it was, it was really cool to see people respond to it and take to it. Uh, and so, yeah, I appreciate your feedback, and you were one of a few... Um, folks who reached out in response to having read it with just a lot of positive review and uh, yeah in terms of how it came together I guess I've been writing in a somewhat serious capacity Um, I guess I was never really pursuing a profession or career with it um, but I just love to write and I feel that it's a a process as you probably know that kind of expands my my frameworks and my ability to to have like sympathy and empathy for other people and tell other stories and feel deeper compassion so uh it all started sort of in that avenue and i've been writing for a few years and um as it goes you just kind of look inward usually first uh through a period of you know you finish one piece of writing and usually there's a bit of a pause or gestation where you consider what subject matter you want to do next and back at that time that was in 2018 um i think i had just written actually a piece about these uh, distance runners on the Navajo Nation and it was one of the first pieces I had written that was not climbing related and then I thought well it'd be fun to go back in this other direction uh, and Brad is someone I grew up climbing with uh, and always kind of confounded me for his like just incredible persona and, and character which was like obviously in, in that piece was written about. Um, yeah and he, he now, I mean now he's a, a legend mm-hmm. and he was kind of in his his last few years had this uh, respectability, I guess, of like Mm -hmm. being the everyman kind of crusher. Yeah. Uh, But you got to see that from the very beginning, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It, yeah, he was just always uh, on sort of a higher gear in terms of, uh, I guess maybe one of his best assets that I saw, like, again, he was my first climbing partner. So I knew nothing really about like any means that people might approach climbing to like there's a lot of cautious approaches to to how you go about the learning curve but you know brad was he had been climbing for a handful of years when i met him already uh but man he would just go and and just try his hardest almost all of the time and seemingly not necessarily for the accomplishment itself but just for this innate drive to like just devote himself to this to this craft and i think he always was clued into sort of uh, that feeling that you know, as long as you're doing that, you're gonna you're gonna just have an experience that's that's obviously like better than the person who just is too reserved and too gun shy. 
Uh, and certainly there were moments where he was, you know, doing some dangerous stuff even even in those early days. Yeah, you said in your article you had voted him off an LCAP team or something because he, yeah. he was too sketchy or yeah, something. I mean, yeah. we, we, I guess we, I'll speak for the corporate, we, the, those that were involved in that decision, you know, came to kind of regret it later or at least see it with some irony, which I spoke about. In, yeah, you in wrote in an essay piece. that he had climbed, he's since gone on to yeah. climb it 50 times yeah, and has he, speed he, records. He and climbed it a ton. He and, had the speed record on the nose for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's great to see how that all sort of shifted um but yeah anyway brad i guess just had this amazing ability to always try hard and not be too sullied by by that like interaction with failure that a lot of us have that i think stifles at least i'll speak for myself that was a process of years to like be okay with what those feelings and emotions are when you consistently try things that are kind of above your pay grade and and know how to coach yourself through that self-talk and he seemed like he just partially kind of always floated above some of that self-talk but also I think that was born from just his ability to always go deep and therefore always get a deeper intrinsic reward just knowing that he was like kind of kicking ass and the end result was bound to come you know eventually which obviously it did he accomplished a ton that most people won't even if they were given maybe the same like amount of time on the road or like he he obviously devoted his life to climbing in a way that uh, not everybody does but I would suggest that even if they did his results probably spoke or sh- like shined a, a larger light just because he just always invested so much. Um, so yeah, he was an inspirational person for me from the get-go and kind of always. Um, and for that reason, I felt pretty compelled to write about him also because his character was kind of a bit like hard to decode. And um, yeah, maybe up until that point in the media that he had had, um, like there was obviously media features and Safety Third was a great film that Cedar Wright put together. Um, but I just felt like there was uh, other elements to Brad's persona from like maybe a stand back from a micro to a macro view uh, on a philosophical level that were like kind of not super um, explored. Hence why I titled it, you know, The the Greater Fool, which is sort of a maybe out of context economics reference. Um, but it essentially refers to a like two parts a is sort of this noble fool character that you might get a la like Fyodor Dostoevsky's book The Idiot which is about if this like if this hypothetical Christ figure came back um into modern society he would just ultimately be rejected and seen as foolish for his philosophical viewpoint mm. uh and then also sort of like what you find in the in the classics like like a Forrest Gump movie where you just have this this seemingly like you know a simpleton person uh, who's just doing these like kind of profound things. Um, and I'm not saying at all that Brad was like that. I think he actually, the more I've learned about him um, in recent projects, I've just seen like he had so many layers of depth and complexity. But uh, for what it's worth, I just thought like a lot of his persona hadn't fully been explored. And in writing that piece that I wrote about him originally, um, it was kind of a fun way to highlight some of his like comical charades and stories uh, but also ask ourselves as a climbing community sort of like what we're doing as we like are goal-oriented people which is obviously not a bad thing uh, but compare that to somebody who sort of like can float above all of that all those machinations or plans and who just like is so into it just for being in it and so um, I guess hopefully the, the audience or somebody will pick it up and read it if they haven't and to get a better context of all those things we're talking about but um yeah it was sort of like uh, a 
piece on Brad that was both deeply personal and had some like intimate moments of him in my experience of him, but also had these like kind of larger macro view questions of like, what is the place of a character like Brad in our climbing culture? And what does it shine like to us? Like what, what does he kind of offer us? That's more than just awesome grades that he's climbed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I've told you this before, but it is, it is a fan favorite. Um, Mm. that piece is people love it and, and thousands of people have read it. Um, even I know, I know it went viral after Brad passed and it meant a lot, um, to a lot of people, but now probably climbers that are just starting or picking it up and it was published in volume 18. If you're listening and you want to read it and you can read it for free online too, on medium or the edited version on the zine site. Um, but yeah, it was a fan favorite and, um, I just kind of, I knew that you had the writing chops and you were a good writer and it, you, I think it was titled Luke Roman. And I was like, well, shit, I'm not even the best climbing <laughs> writer named Luke anymore. <laughs> so I better team up with this guy before I am jealous of his abilities. But, um, was there an emotional component to, cause you spent time with Brad interviewing him. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause I, w- I think I asked you this after we published it, but it was like, did you write this after he died or before he died? Cause you, you kind of crafted it it was you had to craft an ending of him passing mm-hmm. um yeah just yeah talk about that just the the like as your friend died i mean mm-hmm. and that's that's heavy and what was it like to you know sadly be memorializing your friend when you just mm-hmm. thought you were trying to portray your friend in another way yeah it definitely uh it took a journey in the writing process that one I guess I didn't really cover that earlier, but uh, yeah, so I started it in 2018 and Brad was, he was often in Southern California in the summertime where he'd like train quite a bit at the local gym and also do uh, like kids camps and belay camps and that kind of stuff and save some money for the rest of the season. Was Um, he good at that? Yeah, no, he (laughs) killed it. Yeah. Yeah. Outright. Like there's videos, I think even if you like find his Facebook feed or something like in his, in his timeline, you'll see uh, people posting videos of him just like running up little like um I don't know like they have all these little obstacle courses at the kids camps and he would just like run train on them and yeah it's it's pretty awesome um but uh yeah so he was always around in the summertime and it was the summer of 2018 and I called him up and usually we'd get together and climb either locally at some local crags or in the gym uh while he was training and so yeah we just hung out a few days consecutively and asked him a lot of questions that ended up in that piece about just kind of his relationship to to partnership and to fear and to other topics like free soloing, things that get explored in that piece. Um, and it was just like the situation of us hanging out together, which is kind of the context to, to ask the questions. Um, and so I wrote probably most of it sometime that summer or that fall. Um, and then that, like I said, that was 2018. And so it was about a year later in November of 2019 when he, uh, when he passed. And so for that whole year, I guess I had gotten pretty serious into school and some other things in life kind of like kept me from the the discipline of wrapping that piece up. But obviously once he passed, uh, it felt to me like the right stimulus to, to wrap it up. And so I went back and opened up the document that I had, which at the time was maybe like 5,000 words. And I think when I sent it to you and put it out, it was about 7,000. So I added another 2,000 words or so. Uh, and all throughout it, kind of in the intro, somewhere in the middle, and then of course the last segment, which was maybe like a page and a half, um, which is sort of like a, a summary. Um, so yeah, it felt like 
I was never really sure what to do with it. And I knew, like, you know, as with much of my writing, I'm, I'm certainly not writing for magazines. And um, I, I think in general, magazines are awesome, but climbing magazines tend to only have, like, at best, you know, with if you've got a high-profile subject, you might get 5,000 words published, and you have to be kind of a premier writer, which I'm certainly not, at least not by name recognition within the industry. Um, so, you know, none of my pieces that I write, I'm ever, I never have in mind to put them into some, like, traditional media. I'm just trying to write the story that wants to be told, and whatever ends up with it is sort of where it happens. And so, yeah, I ended up putting it out, and it just so happened that, uh, you know, um, at that length of about 7,000 words, you were willing to take it on, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, in terms of the loss involved, you know, um, it was like, to be honest, uh, Brad definitely meant something to me um, and still does. Um, but our relationship in the last couple of years before he passed definitely um, wasn't as close just because he was like catapulted into this level of climbing uh, fame and he just wasn't as home as often. And I, of course, I was still based in Southern California, you know, in school and whatnot. So um, we were definitely closest in the early years, like 2008 to 2010 or so. Um, and that's when that's where most of my stories that I have of him uh, spring from. But yeah, we always kept in touch and, you know, had phone calls or not, not so much phone calls, text messages, mostly occasional small chats. And, um, you know, we linked up on a rope here and there over the years. But um, at that stage, when he passed, he was mostly like uh, somebody you would definitely consider a friend. But of course, I'm not calling him for normal life situations. It's somebody that you're looking onward kind of from the bleachers and cheering on. And just I was just so stoked to like to see how his life was developing and where he was going. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, to get to the heart of the matter in terms of the emotional content, you know, what I understood is that a like I'm not a voice for all things Brad like there's a lot of other people who have other visions and stories and experiences of him and and so some of my uh, input and translation of, of my experience of him isn't totally gonna agree I think most people like the piece but there was definitely some people who were like mm, that's not a representation of the guy I knew um, so it was cool to see that and learn a little deeper because I had lost a little bit of touch with him over the years and then also for me like what I did um, was you know on on social media, I just reached out to his family personally and, and his mom in particular and just made sure that like if I was going to put something out there, um, I'm going to communicate with the family first and just express a personal uh, sense of condolence and, and sympathy. And uh, and that's like honestly the like the coolest part or I suppose like the, the best uh, sense of right relations because it's been it's been awesome to sort of uh, engage with his family and his parents a lot since that time and sort of. Um, yeah, just sort of be together in that, in their, mostly in their grieving process, um, but to just sort of uh, be around and, and keep it personal. Um, it doesn't, definitely, it does not, like, sit right with me to be, it, like, it would not have been good to have just written that piece and not, like, develop some sort of a, a family uh, rapport or something. Um, so I understand that there's people who are, are far more vested in, in that loss. And that's also what I wrote about at the end of the piece. I think one of the last lines or last chapters is talking about how any of us who were sort of in his arc of becoming um, will feel some loss, but also a lot more pride and just to see where he went and how he did it. Um, but it'll be the most painful, of course, to the people that are like that he had the last hug or the last mm -hmm. kiss or the last I love you and the last goodbye to the people who, you know, who are deeply close to him as as ex-partners or climbing partners or family members um no doubt about it like anything i've felt in terms of 
uh, missing the guy is like it's sincere and I miss him but um, it's nothing compared to what people who are actually really close to him at the end uh, have felt and are feeling yeah and I, I you know I've lost friends over the years and I think anyone anyone who lives enough life will lose people but I think if you're a climber Climbing for me also includes the other sports and, and I've lost the most people to avalanches, three friends in in the last year, but you, Mm. and and none of them were very, very close, but like you realize that death is everyone interprets it differently. It's it's the loss. The grieving process is different for everyone, but, but if you can all support one another through the process, it's um, I think that's the most important thing that you're, you're kind of there for one another. And, My my good friend Adam Lawton, who I uh, climb with a lot out here, it's been his tenth anniversary of his wow. death is coming up, and he's still so vivid. And yeah. and like we had adventures out here, and he died uh, in an avalanche in, in British Columbia. But it's like man, the it's it's still there's still a sadness there, and then you know yeah. I can only imagine what his parents feel and his brother and and everything. But um, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have really an ending to that, but sure. it's um, yeah. death is, yeah, it, it, it's different for everyone. But then I think what you're alluding to too is like what Brad meant to you. That was your truth, mm-hmm. and you wrote that out. And that's what I think good writing is: is mm. you know, kind of conveying a truth. And you have your story, like you, you have your story about like it starts off where Brad's yeah. taking a whipper on what is it, Valhalla or uh, something, the or the vampire yeah. in, in yeah. Uh, Suicide Rocks Pockets. or yeah. Dakits, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the difference rocks. between Dakits yeah, and Suicide just, Rocks? They're just on <laughs> opposite sides of of a of a canyon, okay, like, okay. San Bernardino or yeah. uh, San, San Jacinto Mountains, um, yeah. So Suicide and Dakits sort of face each other on opposite ends. Got it. Valhalla is a suicide, which is okay. more like the slabby kind of, it's known to be more slabby and sun facing and a lot of those big runouts. And then uh, suicide has a bit more established, like taller and longer lines. Okay. Uh, and the vampire is like kind of this four pitch gem that goes up one of the main head walls. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, the first pitch, uh, it's a relatively long pitch and it has just this like infamous, at least locally in Southern California, it's a pretty infamous mantle. It's super committing and it's right at the chains of the uh-huh. anchor. <laughs> Most people that I've seen up there, like you can get to a point in that mantle where you're pressing it out and you can actually just reach up. Like there's nothing on the face, but you could grab the chains. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but your pride is like and telling people, you not to. do it. Yeah, you're yeah. Looking, like you kind of leave this crack system and, yeah. and uh, it's been a couple of years, but if my memory serves me, you're, you're always going to be like about 10 or 15 feet run out above that last piece to do that mantle. And so you're looking at a sizable whip and a lot of people just don't take the whip. Um, and one of my first climbing experiences with Brad was on that route and I was blowing him and sure enough, like he fucking took the whip (laughs) and, uh, it just was like probably the first time I had ever seen, uh, something like that, that level of commitment and willingness to just like blitz into a situation and, and not mind the consequences and then like take in the consequences. And there was fear, like he hesitated, uh, and then, but then he did it. And in my memory, it was like, I could just tell that. In so doing, he was kind of onto something bigger and better than just that one move or just that one climb that single day. Like, I just saw it right away. It's like, this kid is just on, he's going somewhere. And, uh, you know, I think, as I've said before, like, it was clear to me pretty early that the mark of my own climbing, personally, um, while it means a ton to me, and it's a great, like, place that I can grow from as a person, like, my climbs are only ever going to just move my own heart rate and my own sensibilities. Uh, like, I could just tell from an early period that Brad's climbs were going to, like, do more in the sense of, like, 
impact the cultural awareness in climbing or like, you know what I mean? He was going to go somewhere with it. Uh, and I could just tell right away in the early days, like, I guess it, <laughs> this just came to mind, actually. It's like that movie, uh, The Sandlot, if you've seen it. I just think that old kids baseball movie. Uh, but there's like a gang of local kids who all play baseball. And like there's this one hot shot and everybody knows that kid's going to go to the major leagues. And all the other kids are just going to like play small ball. That's kind of what it felt like. And Brad was like just so obviously on a trajectory for, for so much more. So it was cool to witness. Yeah, that that's awesome. And um, I feel like with, with climbing and and a lot of things in general it's like someone has got to step up and and tell the story or tell their story and mm. if the story you know i think that you were able to memorialize him in this way that was your truth and it in climbing especially you need like your heroes and as we all know you you, you like most of the time you don't want to meet your heroes but occasionally yeah. there yeah. is that hero that you do want to meet we were talking about jimmy dunn earlier um and earl wiggins and um how a lot of their story is kind of like undocumented but there's these there are these legends and it seems like jimmy dunn is maybe like you're, you're a california climber i'm a colorado climber yeah. even though i climb mostly in utah yeah. <laughs> but utah wasn't so uptight i might live in utah but that's another story um but you you stepped into this role now and um you're also writing a book about Brad. Um, what uh, what drove you to writing, and in, in, um, what do you what do you get out of it, and, and like who are your inspirations? Oh man, that's a that's a lot. Good question though. Um, three questions. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, just in terms of the the immediate subject matter. Yeah, I've been like you know super fortunate to. Um, you know, that piece about Brad got out to a publisher, uh, Sequoia, over at D'Angelo Publications, and she reached out immediately and, and just wanted a, a long-form biography on Brad. Uh, and that's nef definitely not my preferred or regular medium of writing, but, um, you know, and I was also just beginning nursing school at the time. This was about a year and a half ago. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just decided to, to give it a shot if for no other reason than, you know, uh, one of Brad's chief lessons to me was always to just kind of go in over your head and <laughs> give it a go. So, um, yeah, also, of course, that's when I reached out again to his family to make sure that, like, if we were going to do a full-on biography on him, that, like, they were okay with it and also, like, on board, like, actually not just okay but, you know, participant um, which they happen and it's just been like a, a real <clears throat> a deep honor and fountain of joy to to keep uh, a relationship with his family <laughs> where the cars are bottoming out in that classic little rut at, here at the castle valley yeah. campground everyone's everyone's done climbing for the day and uh yeah shadows are drawing long as the sun goes down it's nice um, but yeah, so the book project came about that way, and I wrote, as you know, uh, a collection of short stories first in this book uh, uh, contract that I had with the publishers. Aperture-like. Yep, and uh, and then now it kind of it's you know time for comeuppance and <laughs> to do what I have to do, which was uh, write this book on Brad. It's been an awesome journey. Uh, I've been able to hang out and interview uh, a bunch of his f former climbing partners and friends and uh, did my best to just tell a story that's uh, truthful and honest to who he was that definitely goes deeper into the dimensions of his character, his relationships, uh, childhood struggles, and just like a really rounded, I think, point of view that most people that didn't know him intimately would not have had. Um, so definitely a different break than anything I wrote about him in that short story. It's like really telling who he is, not necessarily my vision of his like philosophical character. 
Um, but yeah, so that's where that ended up. In terms of writing, like I said, I've been uh, probably, I don't think I've ever really had a sustained journaling practice, but I've always been, you know, pretty into writing about stuff for whatever reason, as it sort of would strike me, experiences that you would have even before climbing. But uh, yeah, I started out like anybody um, probably who, who's into climbing writing, like just kind of telling stories about shit that I had done with friends and like uh, my my writing journey definitely goes hand in hand with the uh, recovery journey I've been on in terms of sobriety and so when I got sober uh, I remember opening up my computer and looking at a bunch of documents that I had written about like you know achievements I had done in climbing and it like to keep it short basically what struck me was how self-centered it felt um, to me uh, individually and and how limited the scope was and somewhere within that early period of sobriety I just realized like my entire outlook on life was extremely self-centered and it would serve me best to start telling other people's stories um, and to just start living in a way that thinks about more than my own like direction or needs uh, I'm not saying I do that perfectly but it's a it's a journey of course and so the writing sort of followed that and, and that's your I, I think intention is a big yeah. um, part of, of writing and it sounds like your your intention shifted um, from yeah. went from w- within your journey of, of mm-hmm. recovery. Yeah, yeah, and really that was like the lock and key. And if it, if I like, I personally feel that I'm really just at the beginning of this journey in terms of being a, a writer, somebody who's confident, and capable, and has a craft at sharing and telling stories. But if at, even at this stage, if we could say that there was like a, a moment where things started to click, that was for sure it. And I think at least for me. Uh, when I started to really focus on learning and sharing and describing events through the eyes of another person or through someone else's journey, um, it, it all just sort of made more sense. And it totally shifted the way I climbed, too, because it, generally speaking, I climbed a lot less at that stage for my own like projects, if, if you will. Like, of course, I love to try hard and to push myself outdoors, um, but it all became at least equally driven by like what kind of experiences can I have with other people regardless of like height or grade ranges just like I just want to make sure that my climbing surrounds others in the community and that's probably something that's a given for a lot of people already um I may have just been extremely self-centered as as the alcoholic would be uh in my pursuit of climbing so that was like a bit of a revolution so I I feel like just to riff on that I mean I feel like as, as you get older you you realize that it's the per, the pursuit of of like chasing excellence only a few people actually get that but you can kind of be delusional in your head because climbing is this glorious thing mm-hmm. and you can kind of trick yourself into thinking you are that yeah. person uh, you are that Brad Gilbright yeah. when realize you're just you but yeah. um yeah. I I don't yeah I mean I've I've not been in uh, recovery or anything like that and and haven't had those issues but mm-hmm. I can say my climbing. Uh, I, like was more ego driven in in the younger days, and I think yeah. young young males are yeah, were. Yeah, that's true. I was talking to this guy in the parking lot. He's like, a, he's got like a Sturgis motorcycle yeah. um, shirt on, and I'm just trying to explain climbing. And I'm like, yeah, really. He, he said his son started at 30, and I'm like, that's kind of a good age to start yeah. at. But yeah, you can um, avoid a lot of the. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just to confirm, I don't think you're alone in yeah. visions of grandeur. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but that is interesting that. 
Um, so what, what's your, yeah. How many years are you sober from, from alcohol? And, um, mm, yeah. So that was gonna, let's see, September of 2014. Okay. Is when I had my last, you know, bender drunk or, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, thankfully I'm, I'm really grateful that, that it's been a good bit of time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As of today, that's a little over seven years. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I guess I've been writing kind of diligently or with discipline for about the same amount of time. That's really um, interesting. You know, and I was telling you, um, Tim folks, who is my good friend and he's in the desert. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, yeah, similar. He was an alcoholic and, and got sober uh, from alcohol about 10 years ago. And it's interesting to see the improvements. It's like once you lose that obsession of alcohol and, and I'm sitting here drinking a beer right now, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like, but I'm also not an alcoholic. Yeah, you know, I yeah, drink beer, like good, I drink yeah. tea, but um, it, it's amazing when when someone is so wrapped up in alcohol and then they get away from it, mm. the thing the pa- the things that open up in their lives and yeah. and how it like I've watched Tim change so much and and I thought we were gonna I thought I was gonna lose him to death um, from alcohol and it's it's so re- refreshing and rewarding to see because you see that greatness in that person when yeah. they are still drinking yeah. but then you're like uh, you know there's some people and I can't I don't know what you were like when you were drinking but I. I personally was not a fan of being around my friend Tim yeah. when he was drinking, but you saw this, you knew this great person mm-hmm. in there, and then you take away this this thing that's hurting someone so much, and just I'm sure you you've seen a lot of of that, and I'm sure maybe your partner um, Natalie could maybe testify to yeah. the improvements in your life, or some of your friends yeah. that knew you, because yeah. you know I only know you as, as yeah. a sober person, and yeah, we're just first in meeting in person today, but we've kind of been phone and pen pals like I am with several zine writers, yeah. but. Um, Definitely. Yeah. She, yeah. Could, she could give you better stories on, <laughs> on how that was, you know, in recovery circles, we tend to just generally talk uh, about what it was like, what happened and, and what it's like now. And yeah, yeah, you could just say, you know, without getting into the war stories, as they call them, you know, it, shit was a mess and not yeah. well. And, you know, there's there's a classic like physical condition in terms of uh, addiction, at least in my experience. Which is sort of that that physical um, obsession and addiction, that constant, you know, you just can't stop thinking about it. And you literally physiologically will will constantly be in a state of withdrawal without that that substance. And then, of course, there's the mental health and emotional or spiritual side of it, which is best, I'd say, best summed up by like an incomprehensible demoralization of self is what we tend to say in recovery circles. And that's just like you know, terror and bewilderment and fear and all types of just daily, like, it's kind of like, you know, every day gets a little bit worse in terms of your vision or hopelessness or your sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Because ultimately you're just, you're getting thrown into the deepest form of isolation you can imagine. And that is just going to like take you away from anything metaphorically you might associate with light or connectivity right purpose utility um pragmatic social function or anything like that in terms of your relationships to self to others to your immediate family to your partners to your job work profession um you you essentially become useless and you become acutely aware of how useless and isolated you are and yeah man you stack enough days of that on itself and it's pretty damn common for most people in those conditions too myself included have had plenty of days and thoughts of, of great depression and suicide, uh, suicidal ideation. And, you know, um, yeah, I'm grateful I never attempted that or in, in an, yeah, again, in like an acute sense, but certainly by the manner in which I drank and continued to live, it was only ever going one direction and, uh, things kept getting worse more frequently, you know, more severe consequences, losing jobs and, 
you know, all, like all the war stories again, like it's not uncommon for any of us to get to a point where we're drinking multiple, like, you know, 750 milliliter bottles of hard alcohol or pints of alcohol a day, uh, plus, you know, stuff on the side, beers and wine or whatever. And then, you know, you end up, end up in handcuffs at least once or twice, <laughs> county bin, this and that. Like, it's just, it's, it's just like, it's as predictable as, I don't know, like <laughs> as many things, like like the the road trip circuit that climbers take through yeah. the Yosemite, the east side of the Sierras and, and the desert. It's like you just know it's always going to be happening. And in terms of the addiction cycle, that stuff's just always there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I I was telling you, you know, before we turned the mics on that I have various people in my life that are you know, alcoholics and and then some some that are still in it that I don't think that I think are going to die. Mm-hmm. Um because of it um and then it's always great for me to see someone to to crawl out of it um what was like the first step like you you say that and everyone it seems to do it differently um but it was like a did did you have like a a rock bottom moment of clarity where you you because i imagine and also i guess i'm i'm having a tendency to ask multiple questions but like Mm. was it pretty acceptable to be able to be that in the dirtbag world um, because, you know, it is, you know, yeah. it's, it's more like, I feel like something I say to people, uh, when talking about like college, like everyone seemed like an alcoholic yeah. in college. And yeah, then, totally. um, so I guess, yeah, two parts was it, did the dirtbag lifestyle, uh, and I've talked to Stacey Bear, another zine contributor, and he's, um, he's in recovery too. And he, mm-hmm. he, he talks, he, he's written some about, yeah. um, how, you know, the dirtbag lifestyle can kind of almost enable it. Yeah. Was it like that for you or? Yeah, I don't know. I've yeah. had, I've had that question asked before and I'd say like at best, I, I, I'll give you maybe a 50, 50, um, which is to say like, you know, my, my feeling personally as, a, as an alcoholic is that whatever permutation I would have been put into in life, I would have found, it would have expressed itself and I would have found a way. I also worked in the restaurant industry to yeah. fund my climbing because it's like itinerant work and you can do wherever. And obviously it's profuse in those settings. Yeah, I did that. So I think every restaurant <laughs> owner except for one I've worked for is either an alcoholic yeah. or a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like there's a lot of essentially anything that's kind of transient and doesn't have a high accountability or responsibility probably does that. You could say that about the climbing life or yeah. skateboarding culture, surf culture, um so yeah i think ultimately like i I would say certainly i know it's not the question you asked but i wouldn't put any responsibility on the culture even today as far as i've seen it to like to say that that's advancing that condition for any of its people but um similarly yeah climbing culture up until recently um i don't want to get too lost in a tangent but like it's been certainly more of a historically a party culture and, and kind of buck wild thing that gets celebrated and you could be loony and a bit crazy and addicted perhaps and people just see that as sort of like a bit of a, a price of admission for for the lifestyle um and so yeah probably there wouldn't have been any historically in a climbing culture i'd say there probably been lack of knowledge on the subject matter just like there is in society though and then also lack of tools or resources to point people um so probably as mirrored in much of our society i think people are just way more open to talk about all types of identity issues and crises and hopefully these days there's enough people that are in the climbing culture that are like forward with that condition um so that if we are you know seeing it in other friends of ours or people we could at least be like hey man i know a guy or i know a girl or somebody uh in in some form of recovery and point them in a direction you know ultimately i think the experience of most alcoholics or addicts is they do have to reach something like that rock bottom you got to get somewhere broken enough that 
you know, up until that point, no amount of someone else's love or good intention is going to like get you to move that, that dial. Um, and it's painful for those people who are, who are yeah. trying, but yeah, it's just not enough. And there's not enough love or care in the world for somebody who's addicted to get out of that until they reach that point of deepest darkness or you, what you also call the moment of clarity when it's just like really all hope is lost and you realize that there's like just one of two outcomes which is certain inevitable lonely gruesome death honestly like in some way that's going to be associated with a jail a hospital or an institution or you're going to understand that like there are people who claim to have had that same condition you have who have found a way to live through a set of principles usually um not that everybody has to do a 12-step thing but that's traditionally where people begin um and at least for me that's what i did and uh yeah, found found a lot of men and women in those recovery circles whose lives had a mark and a quality that I was like, oh shit, like that's pretty incredible because when you hear them share their stories of what they've lived through and what they've done, you're like, yep, you're definitely <laughs> one of this kind, right? Like we're we're the same, um, and uh, and then you pick it up from there. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of ways people can find and sustain sobriety or live a recovered life. For myself, I've been as uh, submissive as I can to like the, a traditional 12-step pathway and uh, just going with men and women uh, who who have like who have that uh, avenue in as much as like if I was and I sort of am a bit of a spiritual seeker like you know I'm going to go to uh, a native culture um, and ask like a, a Diné or Navajo elder about their long history of how they find and interact with a spiritual world um, if I'm going to try to tackle this thing that is sobriety um, because as I think I was going to say earlier it's actually hardest usually when you stop right at least because that alcoholism or that that behavior has just been masking all the stuff you can't really handle or deal with and so usually for most alcoholics that immediate reaction like you have a moment of clarity which is like oh shit and you might like go dry and kick the substance you'll have a gruesome like you know three to five day uh, detox period and then that like then that's when you're in a danger zone is that like one to three to six month period where if you're not actually taking on those suggested steps and being around a fellowship of people your life is going to be like just jacked up because you're going to feel all the shit you haven't been feeling and you don't have that solution to tackle it right and or any tools or steps to use uh, so that's like that's definitely the critical period Oftentimes, it's really hard to get someone to stop, but it's especially, in my experience, important um, to nurture that that immediate period after the fact. But uh, yeah, so for me, I I had a moment of clarity, I suppose, if you will. I knew for a while. I sort of like what you'll say is uh, I skid on the bottom for about six months. I had my first real like detox uh, period like earlier that year in 2014, and I sort of had periods of wave-like periods of of sobriety and then falling off. Um, and then the last one, like I knew before I went out for that last set of, you know, drinks that like my situation was what it was, but I felt obligated. I was a, a best man at a friend's wedding across the States, like on the East coast. And I didn't want to miss it. And I knew there'd be, you know, alcohol and shit there. And, um, I just, I was in that period. I was like maybe 30 or 40 days sober. I didn't have the skill set to be in that place but I had too much pride to just say, hey, I can't be there for you as a friend. I convinced myself that the friend thing to do would be to show up for it when honestly, like the most honest thing to do 
And the better thing to do would have been to like state my condition and not have that pride about yeah. it. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I just, I know from being around people that are going through that, it's just, it helps maybe someone out there is listening that Absolutely. it could help. And yeah, it's, it's a prevalent and human condition. And in our, in our culture in the United States, we alcohols everywhere and, um, it's just such such a part of our culture and mm-hmm. some people just can't handle alcohol but yeah thanks for sharing that and i'm interested to hear you say that that affected your writing and your climbing um let's talk about the writing part like i think that the best writers i think it's pretty obvious if you're an egotistical writer i don't think it makes for good writing okay. <laughs> yeah. i think there's you know maybe a hip hop or yeah. you know something yeah. i have a buddy that used to joke about i'm a big hip hop fan i talk about it a lot and he's like all hip hop is just spray mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um yeah. but how did uh kind of yeah getting sober and then just becoming more humble how did that affect your writing and and um it seemed like you, you've done most of your writing in since you you stopped drinking yeah. and yeah 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 well a uh, side note on that it's funny I was making a a little mixtape the other day of some hip hop and I was like you know it, it was like a ninety minute mix and I, I do all kinds of things like this on my <laughs> spare for time but uh, I was like yeah I'd really like to just put a slew of songs together that are like pretty you know conscientious. <laughs> And, like, I just kept going to, like, hit after hit of, like, you know, all these old school hip-hop dudes and just being like, fuck, man, even, like, Tribe Called Quest and all this shit. I'm like, there's just so much spray that's going on. I'm like, shit, you got to work really hard to find a good collection of songs in hip-hop that are, like, really about, like, holistic, higher-level stuff. And, you know, of course, that East Coast branch of hip-hop in those days was meant to be the more elevated brand compared to the West Coast kind of, like, gangster rap, right? But even then, it's just so... There's just so much of that, like, spitting your own self uh, in that culture. But And I, I think it comes from, because um, I'm always down for a good hip-hop uh, <laughs> turn, um, as anyone who listened to the Chris Hampton interview knows, um, I think it comes from, like, the battle rap mm-hmm. of of nature of hip-hop. I mean, hip-hop isn't just rap. It's breakdancing. It's art. It's knowledge. Yeah. Um but I, I think that, that the the braggadocious part always comes back to, you know, rap being this battle mm-hmm. kind of format. But the original hip hop, you know, you look back to like, um, I think DJ Cool Herc is considered the, you know, the godfather of hip hop. It was it was like about community, you know. Um, yeah. it, but I, yeah, you're right. There is there's always yeah. the kind of well, the underlying I'm the best. What, what I not took, always, but yeah. What often. I took from that that I yeah. probably didn't gather back in the day. I'm you know to for context. I'm I, a me- Mexican who looks more as a white person than a Mexican, but grew up in a bit of an immigrant culture. So there was always like some relationship to the to the sort of not fitting into society experience that I felt, and I'm sure a lot of young males or females feel at, you know, at that stage in life. Anyways, I got into those parts of hip hop when I was like an adolescent. Um, but yeah, ultimately these days I can see like, look, the, the black African American experience has been a fucking toil and it's pretty natural in those settings to have to fucking fight for like each goddamn like welfare check and, and plate of food. Right. So it, that battling context of battle rap and like having to like get yours and do shit. It's like, it's very much to me, at least I could be way off, but in my opinion, it's like a byproduct of of exactly that all the systemic injustices that are put upon that people group that makes them 
even it expresses itself even in that art form right and it's like they have to just establish who they are and what's like how they're going to make it in a world that's always been sort of against their their growth and productivity so looking back i'm like man if that came from a different group of people it would seem super egotistical but even that expression in hip-hop historically i look at that and i'm like yeah that's kind of a function of like what what they had to come through which is like it for me that actually makes me feel more sympathetic to why it has a place putting aside some of the overtly like like misogynistic shit that, that yeah you could look to there. you could look to hip-hop and just see how how the world has changed or mm-hmm. even just referencing like the word gay or, or whatever mm-hmm. like that um you can see the change in in that in hip-hop and yeah. um and then you see like a jay-z who has been through everything and i don't know if you saw his like hall of fame he just got inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame and he's he's like he, he did this whole tangent about krs1 and knowledge and yeah. how it was like cool to have a book and shit <laughs> in that era of hip-hop yeah. and and now Jay-Z is, you know, an, a low-key underground activist, and he's a billionaire. And mm-hmm. um, anyways, um, yeah, <laughs> hip-hop is cool. I think yeah. hip-hop, it's 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 a cool, like, inspiration for writers, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get a lot of imp- inspiration from hip-hop artists, and, yeah. and I have my, my favorite ones. And I think they are, especially like a Jay-Z or um like a Lauren Hill or an Andre 3000 they are yeah. the and Kendrick Lamar is the obvious one now but they are the poet laureates or I don't even know how you say that yeah. word but yeah, they yeah, no, they're it, the man. poets are of our time they're the roomies mm-hmm. of our time you know yeah no I geek out on that stuff I um I'm with you though for sure I think especially like the, the call and response nature of hip hop is uh, you see it in uh, kind of all cultures, but it definitely goes back to like, you know, pre-colonialization, West African, like call and response traditions are everywhere. And even in the Middle East, too, there's a big argument for like, that's always been how stories and knowledge is shared. And it's a great medium. Um, it's super cool. I, I, yeah, I dig it. But uh, back to your earlier question, what let, if if I'm going to be honest and answer the questions, I did skip the one earlier when it was about writing, which is you asked me what... Uh, what stuff I'm into and I'll confess that I'm a terrible reader. We actually talked about this earlier this morning. When sure. We were having coffee, yeah. but I honestly haven't read a book cover to cover in probably 15 or 20 years. Um, and I'm not sure what that says about my writing, but I do read a lot. It's mostly though, like I'm the type of guy who just geeks out like crazy on anything and everything like hip hop or the history of, you know, West African music or, you know, who knows, like history of like, you know, a certain sports organization or a scientific process that, you know, the mycorrhizae go through in terms of fungus development or something like I love to read for the sake of information and then connect dots. And uh, like I love studying, uh, of course, in nursing, you start with a background in biology. So anything that has to do with life cycles and environment, ecology, and just seeing how life works in this universe and then drawing parallels to sort of like what that implicates in the human experience um i just i'm fucking fascinated with so much information and knowledge but when it comes to storytelling i uh yeah i honestly just haven't like i guess and i'm not saying that to to have some sort of humble brag what what i think i mean is like there's very few other places in life that i've lived where like like my climbing for instance has been influenced by certain people i know and it's also influenced by tradition and history, which is, I think, ultimately affirmative. Like, it's a good thing. 
but we, I think we all have very few expressions of ourselves that are just uniquely ours and not necessarily like me trying to do like if I was going to write hip hop or if I'm going to play, I play like string instruments. If I'm going to write music, I guarantee you the first thing that's going to come out of a guitar when I'm playing it is going to be something that imitates West African music or Ethiopian time scales. But when I write, like, of course there's influence, but for the most part, what I enjoy is that because I don't really read too many people, I'm not really trying to be like anyone. Uh, and I think that allows just a little bit of like purity of scale to like, I'm just trying to share a story in a life that I, I claim to know about and not like attach it to some, some history of storytelling. Um, if that makes sense, like I'm, I'm definitely not trying to write like anybody who's influenced me because kind of like to some degree, I haven't had those influences. Um, like I'll read about writers and what made them what they were, but like there's just very few actual works that I've read. Um, I don't know if that's a bit of a paradox, but. <laughs> well, I think it goes to, I heard uh, like Steve Harvey and Jerry Seinfeld were having a conversation about comedy and it's like, you can't go to school for comedy. You can't teach yeah. comedy. You can't even tell someone why something's funny. Yeah. And I'm honestly surprised that you you haven't read um, because you're such a good writer, but I think that speaks to the fact that you just have this innate um, talent, God-given gift, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And, and then I, I think that speaks to a craft of something that you're, you're going to, obviously you have to put your time in, you have to put your work in, but you were maybe just like, kind of born to be a writer yeah i don't know I'll, I'll say this there's there is a bit of a secret recipe um and i i think i mentioned this to a few people in the past but i've got especially these days i feel incredibly well resourced um because it's one thing to like have the vision and know what stories you want to tell and i guess that's pretty individual um but when it comes to like anything i've put out um in in the first book or online or anything i've shared like has all gone through a couple of eyes first and those have been really important sets of eyes and the primary one uh, is a friend of mine named Jeremy I grew up with this guy and he now lives in Australia uh, he's a couple years older than I am but like a super close friend and he is uh, in my estimation uh, he is the closest thing I've ever met to a at least uh, an intellectual genius. He's a, a polyglot, like who speaks any and every language. It was a polyglot. It's just the fancy word for uh, speaking a lot of languages. I got, I got yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think the root word being glottal is like of the tongue. Yeah. Uh, and poly being many. But yeah, uh, yeah he, he speaks all types of languages. He's like just well read and artistic and gifted. And like, you know, he, he's, he's an incredibly good poet. He has a publishing company, or at least he did until he changed professions. And He's just done all kinds of stuff. And like all of that intellectual genius, I would say, is only outweighed by his emotional intelligence or EQ, as they call it. And so he's just this guy that's always been in my corner. And up until, kind of back to your earlier question, up until I got sober, I never really understood that. But as I started to write and share stories that were kind of outward facing and focused on others, I would send them to my buddy Jeremy and... Uh, he would, you know, he could very easily read them and critique like on an academic level and probably send me a bunch of stuff that's true, but also like very esoteric uh, and like high nosed. But and none of that shit matters to yeah. tell a good story. Yeah. And so he yeah. would just come back with the most like simple but guttural and visceral like 
I need to feel like this is what I'm looking for. Like I, he would see a character or a story and he would see the most important part of it before I could really. And he would steer me to that. He wasn't making grammatical suggestions. And I do think that that stuff's important. And I probably need to learn that the most at this stage in my writing. It's kind of like I've freehand played guitar my whole life, but I can't read music, you know? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. So I couldn't read sure, music, right? It's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I do think you are best suited if you can take in the whole uh, experience, but it's not necessary. Anyway, so in regards to Jeremy, he wasn't about that, although he could have been. He was just always pointing me to the emotional epicenter of a story, and it really helped me understand what is important to talk about. And so, yeah, he, he's somebody I send all of my stuff to, uh-huh. and he always gives great suggestions, and inevitably there's a, a revision or two that are made in, like in, in lieu of what he suggested. Mm-hmm. And then having... Um, Having put out that piece on Brad a couple years ago, I got uh, immediately in contact with Michael Kennedy, who reached out to me. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had a, a pretty awesome relationship since then. And he wrote the forward in, in the first book, Aperture Alike. Uh, but he's also an incredibly wonderful human being with a, with, a, with a deep and caring heart, primarily. And, of course, he's got the the career chops as an editor and a writer himself in starting Climbing Magazine. Um, to tell these specific types of stories really well. And so I pass a lot of my stuff through him also, and he's never worked like primarily as an editor, so to say, um, but he's always also giving me feedback on that very emotional level. And also um, he's just really good about like, because he wrote for magazines primarily, he's really good at cutting out stuff that doesn't have to be there. And I'm absolutely the type of guy who can just like, overwrite the shit out of something so it's nice to have someone like him be like let's just clarify this what do the english people call that killing your babies or something you got to kill your babies <laughs> yeah i would i would think yeah something like that something like that yeah. yeah anyway so all that to say like i probably haven't come up in writing in a traditional sense that a lot of people do it was never like my stated aim and i think I, I'm so stoked when I hear people talk like, yeah, that's what I want to do mm-hmm. is be a writer or be a journalist or just pursue storytelling or truth telling or something. Um, but for me, yeah, it all just sort of came as a byproduct of honestly, like I, I like anybody else, it's a human condition to love a good story because that's how we better absorb truth on a deeper level. That's beyond like just the intellect. But like, yeah, I started writing because it allowed me honestly to like see other people's perspectives better and I think I was just really really self-centered and of course um, as we talked about earlier today like somewhere in there I started to become aware of like you know the difference between watching a good movie and like being into the story and then watching a movie and being into not just the story but the way the story is told and after starting to write a few stories of my own I was like oh yeah there's kind of a craft to this thing and like all this shit that I was not cognizant of um due to the help of people like Jeremy, I became aware of. Mm. And then, yeah, like it, it sort of starts to fall into place. I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with anything you've said, but certainly, um, the most important part for me to currently express myself well as a writer, uh, is the discipline on a pretty much a daily basis. Yeah. But as you know, like writing is definitely not just about writing. It's like how I engage with every day. It's what I wake up and how much I tune my radar to like the signal to noise that's out there and like watch anything from like we were sitting there having coffee this morning in downtown Moab and this old lady runs by with a cigarette in her mouth and she's on like <laughs> she's on a little like wheelchair scooter thing and like obviously she's not in good enough health to like to walk. 
but she's still smoking the cigarette. And like that level of human condition expressing itself right in front of your eyes, like you got to just see that stuff all the time and embrace it. And when you're, when you focus on that kind of stuff, I, I personally believe that like your writing starts to get better because you're going to pick up details everywhere in a person and how they carry themselves or what they're dealing with. Um, it's in what we say, what we don't say. It's, it's all over the place. So for me, like being a good writer, just it's a, it's a sort of a, a charge or a, like it's someone, it's, it sort of is like a mission statement to just be a better person. It really is for me. And I hope that the stories become better. And I personally, like, I wouldn't say I'm always going to give you a silver lining, but I'm like, I'm always going to write stories. All of my stories deal with people that are in some level of pain or like a crucible of some kind, but they're always optimistic. Like I just can't, I can't write a story always addressing, of course, the difficulties in life, but I can't write without seeing the positive. And maybe that's just because I've had so much sobriety or, or, you know, time away from a drink at this point that every day feels like a miracle to someone like me. But um, anyway, man, yeah, it's all super intertwined. So I'm stoked. Yeah. And I feel like as a, I mean, that was super, super interesting. And I always love hearing about writers, how they their process and, mm-hmm. and gathering material. And um, it really made me think of, you know, I think I told you that one, your last piece, um, Angels of Light, um, brought me to tears and you were describing kind of the, um, this dirtbag lifestyle of like, gosh, we're out here, we're in J-Tree, we're partying night after night. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's these moments where, you can kind of run into your friend you just got running your friend Mike and you're like, everything's great, you know, gloating in your self promotion and, and whatever. Um, but where you really got it with me, was it like, I needed this, I needed the, you know, and, and I think you and I have a similar path that we've talked about today where we've both kind of dirt bagged it and, Mm -hmm. you know, even going to J tree in the Creek and Potrero, it's like, there, there's all these stops that, I think you feel a kinship with anyone who has done the same stops, Mm -hmm. but you really got it to me. And I guess this is like the final like conversation I'd like to have in this of you. I think that's what a a writer does the best is when you can bring something into someone's life that kind of brings them to a new understanding of something. Um, And with, with that essay, you, you just, you're like, well, I needed this Mm -hmm. because I feel like a lot of my, time dirt bagging was and this is kind of the pre sprinter van pre-internet yeah, yeah. <laughs> era where it's just like a lot of loneliness i think if yep. you're single yep. and you're out there you got a lot of time on your hands and mm-hmm. for me it was like too much time on my yep. hands and and i also didn't have those avenues where i could have maybe been just been writing on in different ways yeah. um but i feel like you were encapsulated in that era too um of kind of needed this like dirtbagging time period and um yeah i would just i'd I'd love to hear your your thoughts on like kind of what that like dirtbag lifestyle really meant to you and in what uh what writing about it now brings up and 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 everything like that yeah well i appreciate the the nod to that perspective it definitely was something i was going for in in finishing that piece and even in writing the piece um that piece came together actually last winter when I was 
you know, being being stuck in school, I get very short periods of time off to go out. But Joshua Tree is pretty close. And in the winter, of course, it's just gorgeous and awesome contrast of daylight and stark clouds and all that. And so I just found myself doing these day trips with my buddy and driving through all the old haunts that we used to climb in those days and just having this real deep, like, nostalgia and, like, visceral memories of what it felt like to be you know that was one of the stops on the tour if you will and to be with all this eclectic group of international climbers that were all mostly just a bunch of dudes in their in the you know low to mid 20s and what you call it the uh, international crag party Party. and that's in volume 20 too if you yeah yeah check it out um but yeah so like at the time you know we would have all told you there was a mission statement which is in the story like we we had this international crag party and we had this platform that was in 2008 it was an election year so everyone was talking you know democratic or republican parties and we had it was the own. obama year yeah, we, <laughs> don't be we, too uh, we, <laughs> nonpartisan about that it was uh, yeah. we were all hopeful about obama yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. that's also or not we but you know people like-minded people were were hopeful about obama and i'm guessing a lot of you guys were similar yeah yeah so it was like it was definitely there was definitely something in the ether in 2008 with like the campaign of uh, obama of course being that single word hope and uh, we would have all told you then we were doing something equally revolutionary right <laughs> which is like total self-centered grandiosity but in our minds that's that was the play right it was like we're all out here 20 something years old just living on the road and saying fuck it to all this stuff and like just that we're gonna find glory or die trying and uh you know that could have been a good title (laughs) i think uh, devin dabney had a piece in volume 20 that was get sins or die trying yeah Yeah, which is hip was about hip-hop and climbing um but yeah man so anyway um looking back though after you know about a decade of time and going back to a lot of these old climbs and you know i still keep good contact with a lot of the people i met on that on that road trip and still call them all friends but yeah it's interesting to see where life has taken all of us um and where it took us in that immediate future you know back in 2008 and 2009 um and generally speaking yeah like life got real we were pretty naive back then a lot of people have had multiple partners die, like we've talked about today. Um, uh, that's pretty common in the climbing community. A lot of people, you know, fell slave to some sort of vice or addiction. Uh, a lot of people also, some of the guys in that story, you know, went and did first ascents in Patagonia. And uh, I think one of the lines at the end of that, near the end of that article, is like whether it was you know, by the uh, empty promise uh, at the bottom of a bottle or the emptiness at the top of a summit, like all of us faced our own uh, emptiness or loneliness uh, out on the road or up at, you know, a meaningless, not to say meaningless, but like it's, it can all be a fallacy, I think, right? If we're, if we're kind of going deep and talking about like some level of truth or insight that's available in, in the outside discipline of life, like if we're just doing superficial stuff, like just trying to get to a summit for the sake of, of doing it um, and missing out, like you talked about today, how you've got these first ascents, but how meaningful they are as a process, not just as an end result. Like that's the kind of stuff that was missing for a lot of us back then or others of us like just we wanted to live that lifestyle, but we found as we went outside that we were just too busy, like, you know, live in like this debaucherous thing rather than the yeah that's what i noticed when i lived in J- i lived in j tree in the winter of um 2006 2007 yeah so shit just yeah. I, we just barely like missed each later. other we could have been best buds yeah um <laughs> but i was amazed by 
of Joshua Tree of all places, there was this camp where it's like you guys are fucking yeah. like not doing anything with your lives, <laughs> and like yeah. you're just. And I've been at that point too, where I've um, I used to always say at the creek I would drink more beers at night than pitches I would climb during yep, the day, and exactly. I think that's like like you said, it's changing in climbing, but it can yeah. still be an easy place to slip into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. So I guess at the end of that story, the the idea was. Um, you know, whether it's in our climbing life or our inner life, we're all sort of like, we're all going to get, you know, something, some sort of trauma, little T, capital T, uh, and we're going to be pressed and we're going to have a lot of emptiness and, and time, uh, to kind of look uncomfortably at, at our core. And, uh, I think at the end of it, I can look back now like 10 years later and just see how, like, even in, even in the worst, like it, as a narrator of that story, my biggest experience is talking about how, like you, I'd be spending all these lonely nights in a tent out in a desert by myself, kind of wanting to connect to something. And even to a degree, even though I was climbing outside all the time, like not really connecting with like something deeper that I really wanted. It just, it was evasive. Uh, and like in order to finally find that, which for me had to come through like I think I believe personally that those preconditions and that alcoholism was happening beforehand was happening then manifesting already and that was sort of this barrier to really live a connected and useful life uh well I always craved it but I just couldn't get it Mm. and like I needed to suffer all of that shit um and and have all that loneliness and and sort of like disillusionment and so did all the the peers that I speak of in that in order to get to the place we are today and there's a real comfort in that as we like I'm in a much more adult stage in life in my 30s and like to look ahead at what lays before us in terms of just making a career for ourselves or having a function as climbers in a climbing community or if we go further out into society if we talk about our our core relationships to family members being a good son to aging parents or whatever it is like there's a lot of shit that's still coming (laughs) and there's a certain security for me in being able to resource the past and go like yeah absolutely basically the rule of my life is like every time there's been a bitter despair or some challenge or some level of of unclarity right on the other side of that experience is something magnificent it's just always working that way and maybe i'm just fucking lucky but it's there and obviously the biggest mirror for that for me personally is through finding recovery and maintaining it but it's everywhere it's from the small things to the big things i mean you can get that when you're when you're climbing and you push through your threshold and you commit to a move you don't want to do because of because of your fear and you can find either two things that like in pushing through your fear you find success or the fall's never as bad as you think it's going to be well hopefully (laughs) most times uh or you can find that running on a trail you go 20 or 30 miles and you get to that breaking point um and and you realize your body your body can in fact go just a bit further and there's often some some deeper satisfaction in so doing and so um yeah there was just an element of like also in that angels of light piece there's an element of like togetherness which is to say every one of us are going through something just like that all the time and so the one of those hallmarks of like the alcoholic depression or isolation is that feeling that it's just you Mm -hmm. um and really like it's all of us and there's a certain like solidarity i think we can draw from that and that's really like that's an like a big time goal of mine as a writer like i talked about earlier is kind of always having like i can't leave you without sort of like a happy ending and 
if anything, it's like, it's the fact that we're all here, we're all doing it together. And there's like a pretty fucking endless amount of light and creative capacity and energy in all of us as humans. And certainly I think drawing large lines here, broad brushstrokes, like the climbing community, I think is far more inspirational and seeking and optimistic than anything. And I think that there's like a lot of nectar there that we can squeeze uh, and share with one another. So in that piece, man, yeah, the goal is to be like, get out there, do it, get get lost. And maybe sometimes it's going to suck and you'll be uncomfortable, but you'll probably find like, you know, some people, they may stay on the road for two years, three years. Other people might find that in one season and mm-hmm. realize, shit, this isn't something that's going to last forever and I should find some purpose elsewhere. But yeah, get out there, get lost, get a little lonely in, in as much as you know that like, that's okay. Like it's part of the experience and we shouldn't really always resist that at first sight like lean into it and my experience is that there's always going to be something wonderful on the other side of it so um yeah i think that's kind of the aim with that piece yeah and and just to bring it full circle and um today we just we we met and we're you know planning on meeting and i have a little finger injury so i couldn't climb so it's always like a little more awkward when you're like Mm well, we can't even climb. Yeah. So we just met up and, and talked. But then we, like, rolled up into this little posse of, oh, God, there's a fucking drone ruining our vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, we you. we got to keep going. <laughs> um, we got to maintain the positivity even with this drone <laughs> facing awesome. us down. Um, but we, we really connected with some, tw- some 20-somethings in the parking lot so instantly mm-hmm. Maybe they're checking on their buddies. Maybe I shouldn't judge on the drone. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but it, it 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 was like it was real. Like we mm-hmm. we start we met these people and and they just they obviously recognized me from the zine and and so there's that connection. And then they one was talking about the Brad Gilbright piece and like oh, this is the guy that wrote it. It was just yeah. so synchronistic. But we were able to have like meaningful conversations with these younger you know people that could be even you know twenty years younger than we are. But immediately we have this avenue to just kind of get real and have a real conversation. And, and I think in the, in the greater world, that's missing. Yeah. Um, and I think as, you know, climbers, we, all, we always have to like strive to, to make sure we're, we're still holding that space. And yeah. part of the journey of climbing is, is being uncomfortable to realize truths and yeah. and you should always you should never totally be comfortable in climbing yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> so I, I think uh it's time to bundle up a little bit but dude thank you so much yeah. for this and um i mean you came all the way from california and i know that you had other missions but yeah. to be able to do this in person is, is really meaningful and yeah. um i have i always talk about this how i have several zine friends that they're just the pay, the pen pals and they're just yeah. over the phone but when it went to actually meet in person and, and spend a day together is, is meaningful. So Absolutely, thank you for that. Man, yeah. Thank you too. It's been a pleasure. You yeah. you didn't have a short drive yourself, so. <laughs> no, but it's, it's always, uh, <laughs> it's always a good to be able to call something like this work and I'm yeah. going to write it off in my taxes. Yeah. For the, for the <laughs> listeners, we're, we're looking at like the last rays of sunset. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. So it's, uh, there are so many worse places to be right now. Yeah. One of the, wonders of the world oh man look at the towers up there yeah. wow awesome all right all right thank <laughs> you so much that was episode 19 of season two hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as i enjoyed having it with lucas we got to do that 
in Castle Valley in Utah, and um, one of my favorite places in the world. And met some cool folks in the parking lot too. So if you're one of the people we talk to in the parking lot or walking up the trail, um, you know, multiple people. I'm amazed by this. Multiple people recognize me and. So they like the podcast or like the zine, just hiking up the trail um, towards Castleton Towers. So that means the world to me. And if that was one of you, even though we get to just chat for a minute, um, just know that means a lot to me. And I really appreciate anyone who says hi and says they appreciate the work. And before we do the final credits, I'm always amazed by some of these podcasts that um, have like 10 people they're rattling off the end. And if you'll notice, it's just a couple folks um, that are that contribute to this, and I'm grateful for everything they do. And all the music from this season is from Devin Dabney, and Devin's a contributor to the climbing zine as well, and he also has his own podcast, The American Climbing Project, which is super unique and definitely worth checking out in your podcast feeds. And our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich, and Chad is really the co-creator of this podcast with me. We've spent many hours chatting, figuring out technical difficulties, and he's been really patient with me as I've learned this craft, and we've been patient together as we um, navigate this world, and I think we're doing pretty darn good. So that's the list. Appreciate both you two, and appreciate everyone listening, and I'm Luke Mihal signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Peace.